from WBFO and Buffalo Toronto Public Media, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, highlights of our daily discussion on race, education, and our shared humanity. Today, we wanted to open like maybe a franchise on Buffalo's East Side, and we were pretty much told that there wasn't a market over there. There is such a need to pump money into the economy here. It's a struggle. It definitely is a struggle. From a business point, we do need venues where small business owners can come together at an affordable rate. We look at Buy Black Buffalo Initiative at the Broadway Market and chat with several businesswomen. Also, it does process in the sense of it motivates me to create the work even more so and get the message out there and, you know, really flip some of these misconceptions upside down and tell the truth about, like, who Black people are. Artist Julia Bottoms talks about the way people of color aren't being depicted in art. And we hear the latest on plans for a memorial to honor the victims of the top shooting. This isn't a quick process. Uh, we will take time to make sure we do it right because we only have one time to do it right. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for joining us. We begin with a visit to the Broadway market. Jay Moran showed up there during Black History Month to check in with three vendors, all a part of the Buy Black Buffalo program, sharing their plans and their passions. Buffalo What's Next begins at the Broadway market, where every Saturday during Black History Month, vendors will be on hand as part of Buy Black Buffalo. The promotion offers incentives for shoppers, among other activities at the market, and we had a chance to speak with three of the small business owners. My name is Elisa Officer, and I'm one of the co-owners of Unapologetic Coffee. And uh, you're a Canisius grad, right? Yep, we graduated, my twin sister and I, in 2010 and 12. Okay, and so you decided to start a coffee business? Yeah, it was like one of those things where we said, why not? We loved coffee, but we recognized that there wasn't a lot of coffee um, on Buffalo's east side. So we decided to open up a location there along with roasting it ourselves. Okay. And how is it now? So you have a retail location. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're online and we have a brick and mortar. We're at 1375 Main Street. And we've been there for, we're, we just graduated our first year. Yeah? Yeah. Well, they say the first couple years for a small business is really tough. How's it been? Um, it's tough because you're learning everything. It's more than just your passion, right? So we're learning how to run business, how to work together as a team is very important to us. Um, you know, putting our faces out there, being more um, in the community, like we've always done that. But thinking of it as like this is the brand in the community is very important to us. So I think our first year is really successful. We are very thankful for the support we've gotten. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, so. What's the hope for the business? I mean, is there? A, yeah, I mean, I know you don't want to take it a day at a time, but I'm sure you have a long-term business plan. And all that oh kind my of goodness! Stuff. If I was to tell you our hopes and dreams, it would be to grow our own coffee ourselves, really? roast it all, and now, serve it out. That's something you can't just do. In yeah, you can't do it. But like, <laughs> we have some hopes to maybe one day, you know, be the producers of our own coffee as well. If I was telling you the biggest goal we had, but also just bringing more of that um, specialty coffee to Buffalo and recognizing like marginalized communities. It's very important to us that people understand that coffee is solely produced by black and brown hands and educating them on like quality coffee and quality products. So if I was to say locally, but like my biggest dream is to buy a plantation and grow my own coffee. Where would you, is there an ideal place for the plantation? Um, there's only about so many places in the world. You can obviously have one. We were looking into um, certain regions in South America, maybe in the Caribbean somewhere, but we would just love it if we can have any location. Honestly, we'd be thankful for any place. Have you gone to scout locations yet or are you just kind of doing it online kind of a thing? 
Well, our hope was, well, we opened during COVID, so we really couldn't go anywhere. So the goal is to go to all of our farms and visit every single local family farm that we work with. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk about uh, the, the places that, mm -hmm. where your coffee does come from. So we get coffee from Peru. It's a collective of different farmers in Peru, a family farm in Brazil, collective of farmers from Colombia, collective of all women in Ethiopia, and then um, the Highland Islands in Sumatra is where we get our Sumatra from. In Indonesia, sorry. Okay, and um, it's called Unapologetic Coffee. Yes. There's got to be a story behind that name. Oh, there's always a story, right? So. <laughs> Um, essentially, my twin sister and I, we like we said, we wanted to open like maybe a franchise on Buffalo's East Side, and we were pretty much told that there wasn't a market over there to have coffee. I know, and rather than just kind of like kicking ourselves when we were down, we're like, you know what, we're gonna just do this and stop asking for permission and just do it and we'll ask for forgiveness later. And one day we were sitting there with a potential investor, and an investor asked us like. Are you sure you want your faces on it, the colors, the fonts? And I kind of just outwardly said, like, we're unapologetically black. Like, this is our culture. This isn't about color. This is our culture. And so if that's going to be a problem, then maybe this is an investor for us. And so my sister, like, in the background was like, that's the name. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're originally from Buffalo? Yeah, both of us, born and raised. So, so when you're talking about... Um, black culture, we're also talking about Buffalo black culture, Yes, right? absolutely. And you would, would you say that, as you see it, that yeah, Buffalo's a, culture is a little different than other cities? Um, yeah, I mean, like, historically, we obviously know Buffalo is one of the most segregated cities, you know, major cities in the world, but I think, like, I think it's understated that, that African-American culture is rich in history, and so we don't always give, like, that, um, credit where credit is due and so we have such a strong culture within ourselves and that like we lean on our neighbors mentality and people forget that that's very important to everyone like we are the city of good neighbors however it's nice to feel invited to go everywhere in Buffalo right and I think that's the one thing that if I were to have my hopes and dreams is that we were everyone in the city of Buffalo can feel like they're comfortable in every part that's like our ideal world right now uh want to know this is something we ask a lot on a show that we do mm -hmm. what does buffalo need what does buffalo need what would be your thoughts today? buffalo needs it needs people to start recognizing that we are in the renaissance like we are not the 1980s city that we used to be like you know, we kept it a secret for so long, but it's a hub, it's a tech hub, it's a cultural hub, you know, it is a refugee hub that people need to start to recognize that we are not the little sister of New York City. And I think once people realize that, um, they're going to start to see what we all see, why we love to live here, why we, you know, most Buffalonians leave and come back, you know, there's something about it. Alicia Officer of Unapologetic Coffee. She was among the vendors as part of the promotion by Black Buffalo. My name is Lynette Elliott, and I am the owner of Essentials Body Care, LLC. We offer all natural skin and hair care products, all made by me with love, <laughs> from raw ingredients. Um, we have sugar scrubs, we have whipped body butter, we have all natural soaps as well as body washes. We are here at the Broadway Market every Saturday for the month of February um, for a Buy Black Buffalo. We are also have a store located at 1585 Kenmore Avenue, Suite 108 in the city of Buffalo. We are located between Delaware and Elmwood Avenue. 
So you've given me a lot, a lot to go on there already, that's for sure, a lot of information, but I'm going to still try to come up with some questions. Sure. So um, what, what about uh, your hopes for this event, this, you know, coming here, being here at the Broadway Market on these Saturdays in February? My goal is to make the consumers in the area, in the community, aware that these businesses do exist. I also want to be able to give back to the community since my business was started in this community through doing events such as this, um, to be able to give them a little bit of something and let them know we're here, we're catering to your needs, so whatever you got, we can do something with your skin, with your hair, we got something to cover all of those for you, and we wanted you to know that we're gonna give back to the community that help us start. So when did you start your business? I started my business June 13th of 2020. Um, I started out doing vendor events. Uh, my first one was at Johnny B. Wiley Stadium on Jefferson and Bess, and it just took off from there. So it took off. So small businesses can struggle early on, but you say you use the term took off, so you feel like you've done very well in your first couple of years. I have done well. Um, I was able to open a brick and mortar. Um, in 20, August of 2022, so definitely that. Um, it is not without hard work because it does take hard work and dedication and consistency. Um, we, my husband and I packed up the car sometimes two, three times a week um, to do these events and we got there early and we stayed late. Um, we actually made flyers when the events were coming up. We got out there, handed out flyers posted it on social media, so it did take a lot of work. So it, it took off, but it took off because of the hard work. And that's literally it. And it's interesting because as you were talking about packing up the, the, the car and getting the flyers out and all that, that's just one part of it. You make these products as well. Correct. How did you get into making these products? <laughs> um, this business actually was started as a dedication to my grandmother who passed away from lung cancer um, in 2005, actually June 13th of 2005. Um, I took it hard because she was such a big part of my life. My parents were very young when they had me and she helped them raise me. Um, and they lived upstairs from her for the first five years. <laughs> so I was definitely my grandmother's baby. Um, and she was big on skincare. Um, and I just, I struggled everywhere, every year on June 13th. And my husband's like, you gotta find something. Like, you can't keep doing this to yourself. It's, it's taking a toll on you. You have to find something to celebrate her. So I prayed about it, went to sleep, got up the next morning, went on the internet and a Groupon ad popped up for aromatherapy. Well, the ironic part about that is, like I said, she was big on skincare and, and taking care of your skin. I was not allowed to wear makeup, and even as an adult, I did not wear makeup around her. Um, but also, I was the granddaughter that was in charge of buying her perfume, no matter what the holiday. So, of course, aromatherapy combines those two things, skincare as well as um, therapeutic care through scents. Um, so, with that inspiration, I bought a $10 mixer and a, a, a cheese, manual cheese grater from Family Dollar. Shout out to Family Dollar. And I got these jars that you can write on with chalk and I went in the kitchen and mixed some stuff up. And um, my closest friends and family, I dropped off bags to them and said, try this, let me know what you think. So they were, they were brutally honest. <laughs> um, the things that were really good, they let me know. The things that they would change, they also let me know. Um, so I went back to the drawing board a couple of times and literally we started out with four cents of body butter and that was all we offered. 
Um, so when I say takeoff, we, not only are we now able to offer body butter, we do sugar scrubs, we do uh, all natural soap, we do body washes. We also have expanded into the hair care, um, specifically for minorities and their hair textures and types. We offer hair growth serums, by, uh, hair butter, hot oil treatments, um, so we have a little bit of everything for everyone. Did you say hair growth serums? Oh my goodness. This is our hair growth serum. Do you know, can you find anybody around here who might need a hair, hair growth serum? <laughs> I don't know. <gasps> Let's keep a secret between us. On We're that not going to tell anyone. I wasn't going to say anything if you didn't say anything. <laughs> Thank you very so. much. I appreciate it. You're, you're very gracious. Very gracious. So you know Buffalo well. Yes. There's a question we uh, ask a lot of people. Um, what does Buffalo need? It's a big question that can be answered a lot of different ways, but when you think about it, and I can see you're thinking about it, what does Buffalo need? First thing I'm gonna say, first and foremost, is prayer. We need a lot of prayer. There's, um, there's a lot going on that needs to be addressed. Um, we need jobs. Back in the day, you had Bethlehem Steel, you had GM, you had Ford, um, you had those big union companies. Um, and, you know, with those closing and, and downsizing, there is such a need to pump money into the economy here. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, it's, it's a struggle. It definitely is a struggle. You, gone are the days where the husband worked and the wife stayed at home and took care of the kids full time. It takes more than one income. It takes more than one good income. Um, and when you're struggling making $15 an hour with two or three kids, it's not gonna work. Um, it, it actually makes people depressed and feel hopeless, and then they're ready to leave. And um, they don't, they, I have to take care of my family first and foremost. So if I can go move to another city and make double what I'm making here, that's the move I'm gonna make. So if we put prayer back in things, if we put God first, and then if we pump some money into this economy here, Buffalo can flourish like it did back in the day. Lynette Elliott of Essentials Body Care. My name is Sean, and I am the proud owner of Glamorous Embellishments, featuring paparazzi accessories. Um, I have jewelry that is $5. I have earrings for $5. I have necklaces that come with earrings for $5. I have bracelets for $5 and I have rings for $5. All my rings have stretch back, and I also have a signature line, which is $25 for the necklace and earring sets. I see. Yes. So tell me, uh, um, how did you get into this business? So, um, some years, well, back in 2016, I was Is that when you working. started doing that? Yes, yeah. okay. in 2016, I was out um, due to cancer, oh. two bouts of cancer, actually. Wow. And um, I started doing this because I wasn't sure at that point what my quality of life was going to be. So I started doing this, and it's been great. Um, to God be the glory. I rang the bell at Roswell in August for one of my cancers. I'm still seeing one oncologist, but I'm trusting God, and I've continued on this jewelry journey, and I love it. Yeah, what do you love about it? I love it because um, it's affordable, it's beautiful, and it makes me feel good. Um, you can feel glamorous without feeling guilty for the price. Right. And that's my motto. Feel glamorous, not guilty. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, it's just the opposite of me. I don't feel glamorous and I always feel guilty. Uh -oh. But that's another well, story. No, we we'll got to work on that. We'll one. work on that another time down the road. So um, 
you're originally from Buffalo. I am. Yeah? Yes. So what did you do before you uh, got into the jewelry business? I actually still do. I work for the uh, Board of Education. Um, fortunately, I was out longer than anticipated, again, not knowing what the quality of life would be, but um, I was able to return back to work, so I do... Um, do a lot of vending events. I'm at the Broadway Market. This is my second season here. Um, I'm here on Saturdays from October through Easter, and of course, the two full weeks leading up to Easter. So this is my second season here, and it's just great to be here in the community and where I can supply a need for the community at a very affordable price. And what about uh, this, the, it's under the umbrella, I guess, what, Buy Black Buffalo? Right. Well, tell me about that. I mean, what do you so, think about it? So, Buy Black Buffalo um, is a great opportunity for minority business owners to showcase their businesses and for people to come out and support them. Um, unfortunately, some of the and I won't say unfortunately, as it is, some of us minority business owners don't necessarily have a brick and mortar for our business. So this gives us the opportunity for people to come out, see what we have, take a look, see, smell, taste, touch, all of that good stuff. And then they're able to um, get our information and continue to follow us, you know, once this season is over, this month is over. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we know February is observed as Black History Month, but Black History is 12 months a year. I like to ask this question, mm -hmm. um, especially over the last year or so. What does Buffalo need? You know, you're, you know, you're from Buffalo, you know, you're involved in a lot of different ways. Um, what does Buffalo need? <sighs> I think we need overall a little more caring and a little more compassion, um, but from a business point, we do need venues where business owners, small business owners can come together at an affordable place, affordable rate, excuse me, and be able to showcase their business. You know, we may not necessarily have enough funds to have our own brick and mortar, but to have a place where we can all come together for a, you know, a fee and be able to display our stuff would be great. That sounds like it a great idea. Great. Yeah. It would be great. Sean Thurmond is the owner of Glamorous Embellishments. A special thanks to her, Lynette Elliott of Essentials Body Care, and Alicia Officer of Unapologetic Coffee for taking time to share their stories. WBFO's Jay Moran. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, a second chance to hear important interviews on race, culture, and more. Up next, Dave Debo with NAACP President Mark Blue, recently appointed to head a commission to create a memorial to commemorate the top shooting of May 14th. Reverend Mark Blue is with us this morning. Reverend Mark Blue, president of the NAACP chapter in Buffalo, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me about the commission process. I'm guessing it hasn't met yet because there are a lot of things you probably have to do. There are a lot of moving pieces. And one of the things that has to happen is individuals have to be approved to serve on the commission. Uh, that's from the governor and from the mayor. And we are in the final process of getting all of those pieces together and individuals because it's important that we do this right. And it's going to take a little time to get it done, but... Uh, we have to make sure that we are very inclusive and that the uh, the individuals and the opportunity to have financing is available as well. 
So step one is maybe financing. Step two would be a site. Step three, design. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, but step one would be community. Okay. We need community involvement. Uh, this process will not be done void of the community. So it's very important that the community plays a role in this, and we will have dates soon to which we can have open forums with the community. I imagine as soon as your name was announced, people were knocking on your door oh. saying, hey, Reverend, I've got an idea. Um, the, the community, be it the, the area around the east side or more broadly all of Buffalo, I think they all probably have an idea of what they want here. And that's good. That's good because their input will help drive uh, a lot of the decisions that we're going to be making. Uh, also, part of that commission will be uh, the families uh, that have been that have suffered uh, through the trauma. And, and let me say that this trauma that we have experienced, this racial divide, this uh, individual who came and disrupted our community, uh, it's going to take some time for for that to heal. So this isn't a quick process. Uh, we will take time to make sure we do it right because we only have one time to do it right. And that's what we want to do. And as a result of that, as a result of the need for healing, it may not necessarily end up on the top site because for some people, that location is still tough. It's trauma. Again, uh, reliving it over and over again. Uh, individuals, uh, families that have been affected still have not come to that site, come to tops, and they they're not going to. And that's understandable uh, because of what has uh, taken place in, in their family. And it's, it's tough. Uh, even driving by it, 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 the reflections of what has, has transpired still plays on the community and especially uh, the individuals that lost loved ones. I don't want to say they're competing interests, but you have to kind of synthesize two different concepts here. The idea of memorializing the victims and the idea of being reflective. In her remarks, Governor Hochul said that this has to express the message of never again. She then went on to talk a little bit about gun control and all the other societal issues. That's a balancing act because I imagine you don't want just a tombstone with a list of 10 people on it. No, we don't. I, I want it to be a, a memorial uh, that will not only reflect the individual lives that were lost and the trauma that was there, but one that would also promote healing. And it's very important that we bring more healing to the community, uh, not just a picture and reflection, but now I want it to be a working memorial, one that's going to be progressive and saying this has happened, and now because of this, these are things that we're going to do to help this so that never again statement uh, can be a permanent statement. Does that mean it becomes something other than just a piece of statuary or a memorial location. What I'm asking, I guess, is if it's going to carry on in perpetuity, is it a center with programs? Is it a museum? Or is it just some sort of site to commemorate? Well, uh, that's a good question. And uh, that will be part of, part of what maybe the community will have input in as well. Um, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves, but we want to make sure that what we do uh, will be lasting and that the community will say, okay, I get it, I appreciate this, and they will also use it as a time of reflection, a time of healing, a time of uh, alleviating all of the, some of the community woes that we're facing right now. So it, it, it can be all of that, but it's going to take form and shape based on what the community uh, input is and also what we can afford. 
I'm reminded of the uh, Supreme Court justices that go before Congress and talk about uh, their their desire to be on the court. And people ask them specific questions, and they say, I can't prejudge anything. Uh, you're probably in the same situation. Absolutely. But I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Uh, headed into this process, what do you specifically want with, uh, without um, excluding the community, without uh, prejudging anything? I, I want this monument, uh, this memorial, uh, this piece of artwork uh, to be all-encompassing to where it does bring a reflection, but it also brings, as I said, a healing to the community. I, I want people to come and see uh, this piece of, of artwork as an uh, area where they can even bring uh, their families to. Uh, a site to where we can just uh, look at and see what we can do next. Uh, a reflection of what has happened in the past and an opportunity to build on our future. So we also need to curb uh, the racism that's in here. So that will be a piece of it as well. Uh, so our children will know their past. There's a saying, if you forget your past, you can, you're condemned to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we use this as stepping stones to better our society, to better uh, the east side, to better all of Buffalo. So I, I see that as part of being the vision, and it's just taking shape when everybody comes together. But I do see that as what I would like to see uh, as this memorial continues to go forward. Take me through the process. Step one is you said hearings are about to occur where you get community input. Step two, I imagine, is once you have a bit of a concept, then you have to raise money according to the size of that concept. Right. Not just, uh, we also need an architect, which will help us in knowing after we compiled information uh, from the community and from the, uh, from the commission, uh, an architect will, will also be there to help us take shape and form of what this needs to be. Uh, and we'll be continuing to raise money uh, based on, on, on what it, the concept is. So uh, once we raise the money, uh, then we have to also have to get a site. Now, what, the site has is, is not been selected, but we do need a site, and we also know the, need to know the parameters of the site so the architect can have that in, in the concept of what we come together to present to the architect. So uh, we're, we have uh, interviews. We have an open forum. Uh, we'll sit down at the commission, and we'll go through that, and we'll look at an architect look at a site, and it could be site and architect, but mm -hmm. one or the other. Yeah. But we also need the finances to make sure that it happens. Any idea how much that effort's going to cost? No. To be honest, no. We don't know. And, and I, would, I would be mature, premature to, to put a figure on that. Uh, but we do know that the governor and Governor Hochul and Mayor Brown have both committed to be a part of the process and uh, to raising the needed funds uh, to be to do the work. So, without any firm commitment of dollars yet, we don't know amounts, but we can at least envision a pot of money from the city, a pot of money from the state, and then a, a variety of contributions from the community. From community and business, yes. Okay. Yes, because there are some individuals and some businesses uh, that are waiting to contribute. Um, and they've been asking me, and then we, we're finalizing that step. We're going to be finalizing that step so I can go back to them and let them know 
uh, where they can make their contribution. Are there any fears that the corporate donations could influence the project? No, no, there there aren't. And I, as as the head of the commission, I will do my best to make sure that does not happen because we need to look at what's going to help our community and what's going to be a lasting effect on our community. And I don't believe that corporate contributions will play that type of role. I believe they're going to be giving from the kindness of their heart to do what is needed and to do what's right. Mm. Now, this is an opportunity uh, not to play uh, political games. It's an opportunity not to say I've given the most. It's an opportunity for everyone to do what's right. Community hearings, fundraising, site acquisition or location, and then design. How long of a process is this? When when would you ideally, knowing that everything slides, when would you ideally want to see shovels in the ground? Uh, if, if I had a magic wand, it would have been tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't. And we have to let the process take care of itself. Um, and I would not, I would be remiss in giving some type of guarantees because we need to know exactly what we're dealing with. And and I want I don't want to give any unrealistic expectations uh, because that would be wrong as well. And people will be looking at this date and saying, you said, you said, you said. Yeah, yeah. But we need to take our time and do this right. We only have one time to do it right. And, and, and with the funds that will be generated, we want to make sure that we're good stewards over what we have been entrusted to do. Is there anything you are worried about in the process, something that you think, could happen and that you want to make sure absolutely doesn't happen? Well, that's why you take your time to get it done. And you um, allow all of the pieces and all of the individuals uh, to be a part of the process. Uh, My fear is that uh, we haven't heard everyone. Mm -hmm. And especially from the families, especially from the community, we want to make sure that that we hear uh, I, I want to say I hear you, and from this, this is a concept of what we heard, and from the concept of what we heard, this is what we've envisioned, and what you've been a part of envisioning to make this memorial be exactly what we need it to be, uh, one that will be healing, one that will be reflective, and one that will be aggressive to help us never forget what has happened in the past, and let's do something so it, the past does not happen in our future the NAACP's Mark Blue with Dave Debo. And we close the program today with artist Julia Bottoms, a Buffalo-based painter and sculptor. Her work explores themes of race, identity, and representation among people of color. She spoke about it last month with WBFO's Jay Moran. And we're on Buffalo What's Next, and with us from the Buffalo Art Studio today, Julia Bottoms, local artist uh, who has her studio here at the Buffalo Art Studio. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, a real pleasure for sure, and uh, uh, great to be actually be inside your studio here and looking at your work. Um, I'll, I'll let you just take us through just for a little bit, because I'm sure you've had to explain this, a young artist. What? Tell me about your your work. So how how do you describe the work that I'm looking at around us right now? Well, the work is portraiture in nature, so it's always depicting people. But I like to think of it as storytelling, visual storytelling, in a way. So I'm I'm not just trying to get a likeness of a person. I'm really trying to make a statement about who they are or, you know, just their cultural identity or how they fit into the bigger message of what I'm trying to put out. So in a lot of ways, um, 
I think my work is shifting from just portraiture to more kind of telling a bigger story through portraiture. And a big part of, of your story that you want to tell does have to do with some very pertinent issues that we talk about on this program. Uh, right at the very top of it is race. Um, can you take us through that, how that has come from you, how that has emerged from you over the years? And we were talking before we went on the air about when you were a little kid, you were drawing when you were very young, but that, that transition from being someone who's just learning how to do something to finding ways of expressing and, and then seeing that expression on canvas in front of you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been a lifetime of experience, you know, as a black woman, I think it's, it can't help but work itself into the work because it's a part of who I am. And that work is an expression of who I am, even if it is portraiture of other people, I still think of it in some ways as self-portrait because it's, it's a piece of who I am in a way, you know? Really? Yeah, a little bit. You know, the, the story that comes out is partially me. So the collection of work in a way is also a self-portrait, even if it's somebody else. That's interesting. I've never, I've never heard that description. I mean, people say like when it comes to novels, especially early novels by a writer, they're almost always bio, uh, autobiographical to a certain extent. But I never, I've never heard that though described uh, from a person's own work. Yeah. I, well, that's the way I feel about it. I mean, it, it's certainly not representing me, you know, at my face, but I think there is that part of me that's trying to say something with the work. And so in that way, it is autobiographical. It's it's speaking about what's on my heart and what's on my mind. And, and the models are, it's super important that I tell a story about them. Um, but it's also, I can't help but have a part of me in there too, you know? And when you say models, are, are you, so are you necessarily doing these magnificent portraits the model is just a, i want to say just a model or is it a portrait about a, per, a person specifically and then you have them in your studio or is it both it's both um sometimes it's more about that person in particular i think the work that i'm making right now is it's it's definitely more of a mix this time so now it's really bringing in more of that narrative that i'm trying to tell and sort of like working in a specific theme um, and I'm still trying to infuse it with the personality of that person. Just like I can't help but put myself in there in a way, I can't help but put the personality of that model in a reflection of the interactions that we've had or like, you know, just something beautiful about their personality, I think always works itself into the work. The last couple of years, of course, uh, there has been so much in the news about race. Black Lives Matter here in Buffalo, of course, 514. How have those particular events or movements found their way into your work? Well, I think sometimes that kind of stuff really takes some time to, because I have to process it too. You know, it's it's working through the feelings, a lot of anger about it, a lot of frustration, sadness about it, even grief. And I think sometimes that takes a while to uh, show directly in the work, but it, it does process in the sense of it motivates me to create the work even more so and get the message out there and, you know, really flip some of these misconceptions upside down and tell the truth about like who black people are and like how diverse we are as people you know we come in every different shade we come from every different walk of life there's no putting us in one single box and i think when we see these terrible instances of violence and racism it just you know it, it discourages me but it also makes me realize that it's so important to keep doing this work and to you know do my little part in the visual arts to try to like change things do you find it therapeutic? Oh, uh, yeah. There's definitely an aspect of that to it for me. Um, there's the frustration that comes first. I do a lot of journaling. Uh, 
And I think that's where the frustration kind of comes out is uh, verbal journaling, journaling or written. So I'll like I'll write down, you know, just notes, things like that. Okay. Uh, just, you know, thoughts on things, feelings, a lot of like really loose, free form reflections. And then over time, I kind of let that refine itself. And by the time I get to working on the paintings, I think that's where it's a lot more therapeutic. And it's me just getting into like this sort of meditative place almost when I'm doing it. You've really intrigued me about this, and I I guess I'm trying to see if there's a way for you to describe to me how maybe a nuance to something that we're looking right around here in your studio right now that is is an extension of those those notes that you're taking, those feelings that you have. I mean, can you maybe just try to describe one instance like that? Uh, Sure. I mean, well, this series that I'm working on now in the studio, uh, you can see a lot of hand gestures. Um, and that's a reflection of notes that I've been taking for a while now on just like representation in classical art and, you know, r- the idea of religion and how, you know, black population, a lot of us have a very strong belief in God. I mean, some people don't, but there's certainly a portion of us that do. And I think about, you know, when we think about Christianity, what do we think of a lot of times? We think of this very Anglo-Saxon version of Jesus and, you know, the, all these characters that are so whitewashed and while certainly maybe they didn't look you know african they they certainly looked middle eastern it's there there's the truth about who these folks are so you don't see melanin in those representations a lot of times and i think that that's so significant because i wonder what that does to our our psychological state you know to have this thing that's so close to your heart and not have any sort of representation that you ever see around that around these figures so anyway the work is kind of a reflection of that, not seeing ourselves in religion, um, not seeing ourselves in classical art on the walls. You know, all of these in my studio here, I have reference photos of a lot of classical pieces uh, that depict different scenes from the Bible. And you can see they're all <laughs> European. Right. So, you know, that, so we're missing even aside from the religion, we're missing from the classical work as well. And I think it's important that 100 years from now, that's not the case, that if, you know, black students walk into galleries, they see it as the norm. It's not an exception. And uh, it's, it, for me, I remember um, there was a painting at the Met that I saw, and this was maybe 10 years back now, I want to say. And it was such an emotional turning point for me because it was a black figure and in classical European art. And I was like, wow, this is so unique, and I, I haven't seen this before in person, something like this. And that shouldn't be the case, though. You know, it should be commonplace. We should see black figures depicted as something other than slaves and servants. And, you know, there should be this visual history of us and what we've done and who we are. It's interesting you should say it like that because it does reflect um, at your website. You do have a, a couple of really, I think, strong statements in there. But one is people of color have been trapped in someone else's narrative for too long. That's a big driving force for you. Yeah, because I think, you know, that there's a lie in that, in the sense of like being trapped in this narrative that's fabricated around your entire identity. You know, we weren't, uh, I don't want to minimize um, slavery by any means, but I'm saying we weren't just slaves. You know, there were other things that we've been, were inventors, there were doctors, lawyers, uh, there's amazing accomplishments, astronauts. And I feel like the thing that we constantly see is like the victimization of us. We, we see that in the portrayals in art a lot of times. We see that in the requests from curators. Uh, it's it's less about celebrating our accomplishments or just appreciating us for the beauty of how we look. I, I'd like to see that. A lot of classical art, when you do see black figures, 
they're just in the background. They're servants or, you know, they're like shadowy figures. And you don't see a lot of instances where it's just the person. It's just a celebration of who they are. You did say requests from curators. So that uh, that makes me curious. So it, it, you see that I, we're talking to curators, we're talking about galleries and things along those lines. So that's still kind of the marketplace. There's a that element to art uh, that still exists. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I think that the people that I've worked with have not asked that of me. I, I've been really fortunate to do projects that celebrate like our accomplishments. But I see not every artist gets that. I, I see a lot of artists taking opportunities, you know, because they have to a lot of times. But um, there are opportunities that don't necessarily focus on the good stuff. A lot of times it's it's stuff that's, how do I put this? I call it like trauma-centric work. Okay. And I think it's totally fine to create work about trauma um, if that's what the artist's desire is. I think if black artists are constantly asked to create work about slavery and about, uh, you know, racism from the 60s and stuff like that, I think if that's not what they want to do, they shouldn't be forced into saying, well, this is how you're going to make it, is if you, you know, do this sort of stuff. Uh, they should be allowed to express themselves and this younger generation coming up, you know, now, I think they have a lot to say. And sometimes that work has nothing to do with race. And I think that they should be allowed that space if that's what they want to do. I like doing work that's about race. I think it's important and meaningful. But I think we have to think into the future again, 50, 100 years, and make sure that there's spaces for black artists that just want to create. Maybe they want to create about botanical art. Maybe they want to create about, you know, something completely separate from that and I want them to have room to do that. We're talking uh, today at the uh, Buffalo Arts Studio here at the TriMaine Center in Buffalo, uh, one of our hopefully final uh, um, remote broadcasts that we have to do for Buffalo What's Next and our guest is Julia Bottoms whose uh, studio is over here, part of the Buffalo Arts Studio. Uh, very exciting that she's going to have a, uh, an exhibition coming up at the Birchfield this July. We'll look forward to that for sure as, as well but I want to talk just a little bit about your background because you um, are from Buffalo. Buff State uh, was your 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 college. Um, how has Buffalo influenced what we've been talking about here? About how, like you said, this is race is a very important part of you as an artist. What you want to say as an artist at this time of your life. How has Buffalo influenced that? Well, I think my experience in Buffalo has been interesting. Um, I've lived a little bit all over Buffalo. You know, I was born on the east side. I moved out to the Sheridan Parkside Projects. I moved out to Cheektowaga. I moved to the west side. So I've lived all over Buffalo. And uh, I think seeing, you know, the various parts of it has made me aware of the really great things. You know, we were talking about that before. There's a lot of cool things happening here. But there's also division, you know. There's a lot of... Buffalo is one of those cities where the racial divide is so present you know it's so visible in some ways for all the wonderful things about us that's that's one of the things we really need a lot of work on I think and so I think um also you know coming from a mixed family my dad's Greek and my mom's black my mom's from the south you know so I think it, we've been dealing with race my entire life uh, I've seen both sides of things the treatment when I've been out with my mixed race family the treatment when it's been me and my mom and, and you know it's it can't help but work its way into the work that you make. If you're making work that's really, I think, from your heart and about you, it works its way into that. You mentioned how that line of race exists 
so clearly here in Buffalo. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Are there spaces, though, where you find that that breaks down, that uh, where it's more permeable, for lack of a better term, the, the line of race is, is, I want to say not existent, but maybe it's, it's a little easier space to be um, a black person Inter uh, acting with uh, white people. Well, I mean, I will say here at BAS, this is not just because I'm here at the studio. It's not a shameless plug. <laughs> I do, uh, I do feel like this is a space that's very welcoming of black artists and very uh, just open to letting you have your message and you know be a creative and express the way that you want to. But you know, there are there are certainly spaces like that, and I think the spaces where you see people interacting the best are the ones where ego's been put aside, the sensitivity you know, to hear maybe some uncomfortable truths has been aside, put aside. I think, you know, when we can do that, there's room to talk, you know, if, if people don't get too sensitive, you know, and can just kind of like hear you out and hear like, hey, this doesn't mean that you're a terrible person, but there's work to be done. You know, maybe you could, you could be doing this better. Your organization could be doing this better. And I think when people are receptive to that, it creates an environment where change can happen. Do you think it's improving in Buffalo? Oof. That is a tough question. <laughs> I think in some ways I'm seeing improvement. I think uh, certainly in the arts, I feel like there's more opportunities for black artists. Uh, you know, I, I see a number of black artists on the rise. And I think the opportunities I've been given, I'm able to also try to like work with the youth and extend opportunities. So I think in that sense, I see some improvement. But then, you know, we have instances that set us back and you look and you say, man, have we made improvement on a larger scale? So I think it's it's a really hard question to answer. In some ways, yes, in a lot of ways, no. Jillian Hainsworth, the, the poet, um, she stated very dramatically uh, to me not long after 514 that, you know, Buffalo's East Side, Buffalo's black community is where art comes from in this community. I mean, it was an emphatic statement, one that has stayed with me how about for, for what you see? Do you see a, a creative, artistic community here? Maybe not, and, and, and to take it a step further, maybe not necessarily fully nurtured at this time. What are your thoughts about that? Like on, on the east side, do, is there? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, there's, I think that's where we really see a divide in resources. I'll say that. So we could just kind of touch on that a little bit. I think there's so much talent. There's so many talented black artists. I just did a showcase um, just like two months ago, I want to say now with Box Gallery, highlighting some up and coming artists. A lot of some some of them were known, but some of them had never really done anything yet. And it's like, how is this talent un unrecognized? And I think when you go into the East side, you may find a ton of talent, but there's not the opportunities being extended there. And maybe that's because some folks aren't necessarily getting into you know, the same programs as somebody that's had resources all of their life, you know, to get into different programs, if that makes sense. Sure. You no, know. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So uh, there's a lot out there to yeah. still be found. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, those of us that are in the arts and do have some sort of influence or platform have to be mindful to like say, okay, where else in my community can I extend those opportunities? And in what ways can I be of service to my community and sort of branch out and say who are these other artists that maybe haven't gotten that platform yet and deserve a moment with that platform did you have a, a 
a mentor or patriarch, uh, for lack of better terms, that uh, was was like that for you maybe a little bit coming up? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky that I've had a lot of great teachers, to be honest. Like, I, Carol Townsend over at Buff State's been a huge, you know, supporter and influence, uh, taught me to write my first grants. Candace Masters has been amazing over there. And, and you know, I, I've had a lot of really, really wonderful teachers. So, and of course, the ladies here at BAS have always been supportive. So it's been a lot of people rooting for me. So in that sense, I think that that's not the norm. You don't, <laughs> we're, we're lucky if we get one or two people on our side in life. So I feel so fortunate in that sense. I've had something that not a lot of people get the privilege of having. Looking back at origins a little bit, I mean, have there been, or maybe there still are, those artistic doubts that, ah, oh, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to make it. it have you had those, and what do you do to get through? I think I've always known that I'm going to be it. I was going to be an artist, and I think maybe for me that's because I'm not defining it on whether or not what my income is for the year. Like, I was an artist when I wasn't making income from it. I've, I'll be an artist if I can no longer make income from it because I'm going to continue to produce meaningful work, you know, that's coming from my heart. Um, but... I think that, yeah, when it, when it comes to making the work, we're always our own harshest critic, right? You know, it's you make stuff and you think it's, you know, possibly good. And then you go back to the drawing board. And it's like, oh, this is terrible. But I think it, I know when something's going to be good. And I feel like I know when something's not going to be good, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, I, I was talking about the meditative quality of painting. And I find and the older I get, the more I know the cues of when not to paint. Um and there's like definitely in terms of moments or yeah 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 i think there's times for me to just go do something else even if i have a deadline coming up sometimes if i sit down and i paint and it's not the right headspace and i'm forcing it it'll turn out bad it doesn't matter how much work i put into it or how much i labor over it it will not be what i want it to be and i'll start over because i won't put it in something if i don't like it so there's definitely like those cues to myself that I'm not in the right headspace and I need to just go do some laundry, do something else and then come back to it later, you know, I think. But that's a lesson I've learned as I've gotten older. Sure. I don't know, a lesson maybe others could, could utilize as well. Um, you're not just a painter, though, uh, and you have quite the sculpture project uh, on your plate right now. Tell us about it. Ah, it's it, well, so it's a sculpture of Shirley Chisholm. It's going to be uh, honoring her outside of her mausoleum at Forest Lawn. And uh, it's just such a huge honor. Like, I'm still kind of in shock some days. I wake up and I'm like, wow, I have this amazing project. Uh, but it's great because I feel like the it's really a crossover of skills. Like I had mentioned before, that I'm working in 2D with my paintings, but there's something about understanding depth that translates really well for sculpture. And I think I've been surprised at how natural it's felt in that respect, you know, just and how much fun it's been just to work with a material that's not the norm for me to, you know, work with my hands and see something take form in three dimensions. It's been really refreshing for me. And are you still finding that ability to put that nuance in that is expressive for you? Is, are you finding that? Yeah, I think a lot of that with this project came in sort of the early part of the work. So doing the sketch, uh, the final sketch that I did and the preliminary sketches, uh, doing the mock-up, the maquette that I did, a lot of that was kind of infusing the personality into it and making some of those creative decisions, like, you know, what kind of pattern is going to be on her dress? What's the pose? What's the, like, subtlety in the way that her hand is tilted? Like, that sort of thing. You, you think about that in the early phases, because I knew with this, once I got to the big phase, I didn't want to have to guess. <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. 
What have you learned about Shirley Chisholm uh, through this process? You probably have learned quite a bit. I mean, just an amazing woman. I, I didn't realize that she was actually buried here in New York, until right. in Buffalo, for that matter, um, until this project came about. And just hearing, like, the people that have been on the panel, hearing their stories about her and, like, what an amazing woman she was. We already knew she was amazing from history, but just right. to hear... You know, their one-on-one stories, I think, has been really powerful. Because you think about big figures, and you think about how disconnected they can feel, but to have somebody have interacted with somebody personally is really incredible. And I think we're so fortunate to have that here in Buffalo. Well, we're talking with uh, Julia Bottoms uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, we're doing our interview at the Buffalo Art Studio, Julia's studio here. It's part of the Buffalo Art Studio here at the uh, Trimain Center. Um your Instagram is J-O-O underscore L-E-A, right? Yeah, okay, so if people want to check that out, they can check it out for yourself and see some of uh, some images of your of your work. I also did find on there, though, um, a post from right after, I think it was right after 514, and you basically said in it that you needed to shut down for a while. Take us, take us through that time for you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as every... Black person, I think, you know, there you need a moment with stuff like that. You need to just have some time. You know, you can't immediately jump into because I think the response a lot of times is going to be overwhelming frustration and anger, you know, and, and that's there's a place for that, too. But I think for myself, I just wanted some time to sit with it and process and just, you know, feel all of the emotions, the disgust that I was feeling, the anger, the sadness, you know, and just the the fear, you know, you, you hate to say that, but the fear that it instills, it, it, those are all very normal human emotions, and I think people need time to process that, and I think it's okay to take time to do that, you know. Thank you for sharing that, uh, for sure. Your murals, you've, you've done some really interesting murals, including over at the Freedom Wall, um, some legendary uh, historical figures like uh, Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, Gloria Parks, Eva Doyle. You did Eva Doyle. Uh, were you doing it from a picture, or you did, did you have her in front of you when you uh, when you're doing some of the work? When you're, I did it from a picture, uh, but it was great because Miss Doyle stopped by all the time. So it was, yeah. <laughs> so I got a chance to every time she stopped by, I'd take a little peek and look at it side by side and think, okay, I'm getting it. <laughs> but uh, that that one, I think, knowing that she was going to see it, I think was a lot of pressure for me too because I'm like, it has to be right. It's got to be right. So. You know, that kind of spurred me on to make sure I did a really good job on that one. I'm sure <laughs> you did a fine job. But what about, uh, I'm interested about what your impressions of her were as you were doing your work. I mean, a wonderful woman, just, uh, you know, uh, somebody really uh, who values the history of Buffalo and preserving it and telling our stories. I think that's exactly the type of person that I'm talking about when I'm saying we need to honor those legends. You know, we have to make sure that their story is told while they're preserving the stories of other people. So she... You know, a phenomenal woman and just uh, very supportive, too, I found when she came out. I, I really appreciated that. It's I'm sure she's busy, so oh, having yeah. her stop by and, you know. Yeah, she's busy. I try. She puts me on hold all the time. So, yeah, she's definitely busy. <laughs> yeah. uh, Arthur Eve, you also uh, did uh, a mural of Arthur Eve as well. And talk about a legend. Most certainly is a legend. And yeah, Well, he actually came to the Freedom Wall um, opening as well, which was phenomenal to me uh, to get to meet this person. Physically as well. That's it goes back to that thing with Miss Eva Doyle. It's like, wow, we have these legends, and I right. get to like right. see them in person and shake their hand and meet them. So I think um, the thing that stood out the most to me about him was seeing the way people flocked to him at the opening and the impact that he had had. Because there were people, you know, just 
surrounding him and people with gratitude, people, you know, thank you for everything you've done. And it's it, to me, that's such a beautiful thing to know that people are still honoring him for the work that he did, because the work that he did still echoes today. It's, it's important and relevant to us today. So I've also done murals outside the city of Buffalo. Cincinnati, is that? The, did I see that? Yeah, the Mammy Smith uh, mural I did there. So that was um, pretty cool one because that worked with uh, students. So they actually got up on the scaffolding, and I, I worked with them as well. And But a lot of it was there actually putting the paint on the wall. So like that was pretty cool to me to see them you know, learning on the job and just how talented they were. That was, it's always, students always amaze me with what they're capable of, you know. I wish I had the talent that a lot of them have when I was at that age, you know. I had the interest, but not always necessarily that technical ability. And I don't know if it's because kids have access to the internet now and all of these, you know, masterclass tutorials right at their fingertips, but I think they take full advantage of it, which is really a great thing to see. As we are winding down here, one of the questions we do like to ask, um, our guests on this show, because it's called Buffalo, What's Next? What does Buffalo need? I think the first thing I think is Buffalo needs, maybe, how do I phrase it? Stewardship of its resources. Good, better stewardship in some ways. I think that we have so much here. You know, we're not a poor place. We have a lot of resources. We have a lot of, like, things that we could offer to one another. And I think if we could really take time to think about what each of us has, you know, whether you're an executive, you know, at a bank or something, or if you're, you know, a person like me who's just an artist, I think we need to each think about what we have to contribute and how we can invest that in the betterment of the Buffalo community. And like within our own individual communities, we have to think about the stewardship of what we have and how do we distribute that in a way that's, you know, helpful to one another artist Julia Bottoms. If you missed any of these interviews or want more than just these highlights, entire interviews are online at WBFO.org. You can also listen live each weekday at 10 a.m. with a replay at 9 each night or just subscribe to it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. This is WBFO News History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the listening area from the week of March 20th through March 26th. I'm your host and WBFO News Program Director, Tom Barich. March 21st, 1910, the very first aviation club in the U.S. started as the Aero Club of Buffalo. March 26, 1962, former President Harry S. Truman is given an honorary law degree from Canisius College. And this week seems to be a popular week for towns and cities being established, and there's a lot of them. March 20th, 1812, the towns of Concord, Eden, and Hamburg, New York are established. March 20th, 1833, the town of Lancaster officially got its start. The town of Cheektowaga, New York is established on March 22nd in 1839. Evans, New York in Erie County was officially established on March 23rd, 1821. The town of Brant, New York is established on March 25th, 1839. And on March 26, 1829, the town of Lockport, New York, is officially incorporated as a village. You've been listening to WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Buffalo's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. 
For WBFO News, I'm Tom Barich.